0: Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast. Get educated or be enslaved. Episode 573, air date April 15th, 2020. Let me uh, just set this up. We're gonna, uh, you know, we uh, everyone knows I've been talking a lot about the coronavirus, uh, but from a standpoint as a scientist and an inventor, and uh, this has essentially captured a lot of people in an interesting way because typically. Uh, This discussion has not been based on science, it's been really based on a uh, much more of a political approach, so I think we brought a very different context into it, so I hope to continue that with John here. John's uh, from Boston, like me, he grew up from working class backgrounds, but I think um, we're both in Boston, which is known to be the center of innovation and science, and I think it's a good opportunity to really talk about how all of this fits in, so uh, John, are you there?
1: I am, and I. it's a great topic to discuss because as, as we know from our study of the history of science, most of the best science has always happened around the fringes, whether from it's, you know, from Galileo to Darwin to Edison, and it's been hijacked now, and by whom and how and why is something that we really should have the discussion about.
0: Yeah, so John, what I thought I would do is, you know, um, you and I have spoken about this a little bit, but, um, you know, as... Uh, the content that I've been sharing started going viral on the internet um, its it's interesting because the uh, fundamentals of what I'm talking about is basically about uh, going back to the roots of basic basic science in this case uh, the science of the immune system and the thing that I've been sharing is that the immune system is not some weakened thing uh, not one principle the other thing is we live in a sea of germs and the fake science or the outdated science that was really put forward on people was that the immune system is could somehow be destroyed by viruses and bacteria and also uh, the mainstream media run now uh, by a lot of uh, people who have a lot of monetary interests and and then they have little minions young kids who don't know any science or math who just are scribes pushing forward the notion that a virus is something that goes eats up your tissues and a vaccine or pharma drugs come block that when the truth that we've been putting out there and I think everyone gets it is that the immune system during its weakened and dysfunctional state it, it attacks itself and that's what causes quote unquote disease but this notion of systems is what I think I wanna uh, harken back to and it interconnects systems from the also the point of where innovation comes from and just to share with you as, as I've talked about I want to just um, talk about the invention of email and the invention of email took place and not in the military industrial academic complex, it didn't take place at MIT, it didn't take place at Silicon Valley, it didn't take place uh, by older people wearing science coats, uh, it actually took place in Newark, New Jersey. And the truth about that, I think really sets forward, where does innovation come from? As you just said, you know, um, I grew up as a, as a, as a kid in India you know, I had two lives growing up uh, John as I've shared with you you know one is as a kid in India where my uh, I grew up in what was called a caste system where my family was considered at the bottom of that caste we were considered untouchables but my parents were quite extraordinary people who made it out of that and got educated at a time when people of their background were never supposed to get educated and they m- m- came to the United States and then as, as a as a part of that um, by the time because I really cherished what this country had to offer. By the time I was 14 I had finished up all my classes calculus which was only offered to seniors in the high school and when you went to first year second year college. I finished that as a as a ninth grader and I did that jump out of sheer hard work. Now I wasn't just a nerd. I was on a division three halfback on a um, 13-0 and undefeated soccer team. Played baseball, was a star pitcher but I also love math and science and and that thing John we should also talk about because there's this notion that if you're smart then you have to look and feel something right you have to look like a nerd you have to be disheveled looking um, and then if you're an athlete you talk slow and you know these these segregation that people put but I was actually both but bottom line is by the time I was in ninth grade as a 13 14 year old kid I'd finished calculus And I did that through sheer hard work, John. I would stay awake until two in the morning solving problem after problem. And I was four or five years ahead of my contemporaries. And that gave me this interesting opportunity. And this is talking about innovation. There was an amazing professor at NYU who could see the trajectory of science and engineering. And he realized that the United States, this is in 1977, 78, was going to need engineers, software engineers. And he decided that, why not take high school students and this was actually having faith in young young kids why not bring them to nyu not only to nyu but to the Courant institute of mathematical sciences which was recognized as probably the number one mathematics institutes in the world in the world uh, europe and, and the united states included and i was one of those forty kids selected to go i guess it was some ways an experiment to them could we bring smart kids here and teach them you know, sci- computer science, and I learned uh, six, seven programming languages, graduated top of the class, and then after that, John, my high school really didn't have any math courses or engineering courses offered me. Uh, interestingly enough, after I finished that at NYU, um, my dear mom found this interesting article, uh, I mean, and she was working, sorry, at Rutgers Medical School, and she introduced me to an amazing gentleman by the name of Dr. Les Michelson, who's still alive, I uh, should probably bring him on at some time and do an uh, 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 you know discussion with him. But but Dr. Michelson invited me uh, to work with him at, at what is now known as Rutgers Medical School in Newark, New Jersey. And John as you was not—I know this is Newark is not um, Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's not Palo Alto. It's the center of Newark, New Jersey, predominantly African Americans. And in the center of that was a small medical college called. Uh, the University of Medicine and Dentistry now known as Rutgers Medical School and I was given initially an interesting job John to uh, analyze sleep data and by the way I was given a job as a 14 year old research fellow as a full time research fellow not paid (laughs) yeah I I wasn't given money but I was given free lunch and to me that was amazing and you got to understand that to your um, to people uh, uh, listening to this you know here I'm talking to people out here on Social media is that to me as a kid, this was, there wasn't about money. It was like, wow, I get to play with computers. I get to work with people 30, 40, 50, 60 years older than me. I used to bring my little briefcase in, and the deal was that Dr. Michelson said that we will t- treat you like an adult, and you just have to work hard, and, and we will treat you like a professional. So I went away uh, analyzing sleep patterns. Babies were dying in their sleep through what was called an apnea, and this was called sudden infant death syndrome. And I uh, was given this opportunity to analyze their sleep patterns and I knew when they would suddenly stop breathing and I essentially came up with a predictive algorithm to figure out when they would stop and later I published that um, in in one of the major research conferences. But while I was there, John, another interesting thing Dr. Michelson gave me was this. Um, You may know, John, I'm 56, I think you're in your late 60s, right? We both remember organizations in the 60s, 70s, and in fact today, there was a thing called the inter-office mail system. Many of these very foolish young journalists, quote-unquote journalists, young people who don't know anything about this, and in fact the, the quote-unquote historians, uh, don't want to remember this because uh, uh, they want to put the origin of email to the military-industrial complex, but the truth is it came from the inter-office mail system. Um, many people will know, many organizations had this thing called the interoffice office mail system, uh, in this university every office and there were thousands of offices always had a secretary and the boss there would go to the secretary if you remember and he would dictate a letter to her do you remember this job? <laughs> right. He would, With their uh, legs crossed
1: taking shorthand.
0: Exactly. Uh, back in the day. Exactly. Yeah. They would take shorthand and, and then they would type it up uh, what their boss told them to do typically always a man the woman was always a female and they would write this thing up on a typewriter and they would put that in their drafts folder the boss would come mark it up with his red line and then it would, and then she would retype it and would go in the outbox, right? And then after it went into the outbox, someone may respond uh, to that mail coming back in the inbox and she would file it in these big file folders behind here, if people remember. And then um, there was paper clips on her thing where if she was writing sometimes a memo, she would do an attachment, remember those? Where she would have the memo and then she would do an attachment and uh, and in addition this memo had a very particular format if you remember John right? the to the from it would have a place called CC and that was literally a carbon copy so if I wanted to hire let's say you I would write you a letter I mean write my boss a letter um, and I would attach your resume and I may CC his boss or the HR person CC literally meant a carbon copy so you put the paper right, a carbon paper and another paper and you would write this thing Um, type it away. If you had to do do five cc's it could get quite difficult. And then at the bottom you had sometimes a bcc but this was the way that communication. This was a collaboration medium in those days and all of this would go into this envelope called the office mail envelope. And then it would get put sometimes into these pneumatic tubes I don't know if you remember those.
1: Oh, I sure yeah? do. My sister had a job at the, one of her first jobs out of high school was doing that exact same work as a stenographer and a secretary at the uh, army base in Boston.
0: Exactly, so. yeah, so so I think the key thing, what you just said was uh, people, it, this was a job. You you wrote memos, you put them together, and then you distributed them. And sometimes when we sent a memo, um, uh, John, you remember they would do a return receipt because you want to make sure someone got it, registered mail, what we call it today. Anyway, this was the inner office mail system, and it was quite a complex system. And they had all these tubes that would go around, but this was the center of office communications. Well, I, as a uh, 14-year-old kid, was asked to convert that entire system into the electronic version. Now, in those old mainframe computers, you could do these simple telegraph-type messages. Hey, John, how are you doing? Right? Simple Mm -hmm. messages. That's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about converting that entire inner office mail system to the electronic version. And that's uh, what I did. Uh, In fact, if you go up online, people see this picture of my high school teachers in 1980 where I presented it. I did the first system in uh, late 78. And then I called that system, John, email. So I wrote 50,000 lines of code in a program called Fortran. Now Fortran is not a, a language for text processing, but it was a scientific processing language. Remember, the guys I worked with were scientists. They were 50, 60, 70. One of the guys in the lab was Phil Goldstein. He was a 70, 60, 70-year-old 70 physicist. Um, but that was sort of the environment—people in lab coats. Um, so the programming language in those days was Fortran, Formula Translation. It was used by scientists. So I wrote all of this code in Fortran, and I named that program email. By the way, everything was in uppercase, John, everything. All the characters, right, the type screen. And I called it email, the five characters, because although the Fortran Fortran language allowed six characters for variables, the operating system only allowed five characters, right? It was not an obvious term, right? It may seem obvious today, but it was not. And I called that, so I coined the term email, first to do that and used it to name this program. Wrote the code, named it email, um, and then I went off to MIT, uh, John. So all of this was done before I came to MIT. Right. In Newark, New Jersey. Now when I came to MIT on the front page of the MIT newspaper, and I was brought up to be a very humble Indian kid, was. Uh, it said, you know, September uh, 2nd, 1981, it said the class of 1985 arrives and on the front page they said that, you know, out of the 1,040 kids, they said, you know, one of the students uh, designed this electronic mail system from College of Medicine Dentry. Dentistry. So even MIT in their official newspaper thought it quite amazing, this invention, that they featured it among the three students out of the 1,040. So. Then I went off to MIT, John, and uh, in the in the summer of, in the in the winter of that year, I was elected student body president, and I was invited to the president's house. And he had heard about my invention, Paul Gray, who was science advisor, Reagan. And he said, you know, uh, Shiva, it's too bad that the Supreme Court doesn't recognize software patents. So I don't know if you know that, John, in those days. I, did not,
1: I was not aware yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah.
0: So this is something that's very, very important that everyone should understand, that in those days, um, the, email was so new I remember when I came to um, uh, 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 work in a lab in one of the labs at MIT for a mechanical engineering professor right as a Europe project he said what are you do writing that software you right because he had big uh, vices you know um, and things like that it was a big machine shop software itself was thought of as something you wrote John no one could see it right think about it you don't see a piece of software you don't understand. You see, you see a microphone. You see a camera that you build. You see a product, but you don't see software. So it was seen as written work. So when I met with Dr. Gray, is at his house. He goes, you know, the Supreme Court doesn't recognize software patents because the legislators in Congress didn't know what software was. Now, in 1976, you could pa- you could copyright um, a piece of written work. You could copyright uh, a movie script, right? But you couldn't even copyright software. But in 1980, what Dr. Gray told me was that the Copyright Act of 1976 was amended to become the Computer Software Act of 1980. And what that meant was software inventions could be protected by Copyright Act. In fact, it was called the Computer Act of 1980. Now, I didn't know this. My parents weren't lawyers, like Bill Gates's lawyers. But Dr. Gray, the president of MIT, tells me this. And he says, you should copyright it. So what I ended up doing was I, I literally have to write away for the uh, copyright to the US Patent and Trademark Office and they send me all the copyright notices uh, which you have to fill out. Again, I had to do it by hand and it wasn't simply just putting a C on your code, uh, John. You had to actually submit all the code, go back and forth. It was quite an arduous process. And on August 30th, 1982, uh, I was 17 at that time, even though this invention was done before that, I received the first US copyright for email officially recognizing me as the inventor of email. And in fact, if people can go to the US copyright set, you'll see all my copyrights dating back to 1982. So I, called, I wrote all the code, code John. Right. 50,000 lines as a 14-year-old kid, named it email, and I have the first US copyright, recognizing me as the inventor of email. So the question is, um, why is there even any controversy? Why did this even become a controversial issue? And by the way, I didn't even want any, any type of fame for this. All of this occurred much later when all of this stuff went into the Smithsonian. And by the way, after I invented that email system in Newark, John, my life had many other lives with email. I created the first technology to analyze President Clinton's email 15 years later to automatically read and process email. That ended up, I, I built a uh, $250 million company called Echomail. To process and analyze email for the biggest Fortune 1000 companies in the world, we used to get paid about 30 cents a buck 83 per email. But that was my second life with email. In fact, on the front page of Technology Review, this was while I was at MIT, an article featured me calling me Dr. Email. MIT called me that. And then, and it featured that. And then many years later, I was on the front page for. Uh, winning a Fulbright scholarship to go back to India to study the integration of systems biology and traditional medicine. The reason I'm sharing that is my life in, with innovation was really, and as an innovator before I came to MIT, in, in, inventing email, but also after MIT, where I invented many other things. I was on the, I was a darling of MIT. I invented many other things, won many awards. But what's fascinating, uh, uh, John, is when my Uh, when in uh, um, September, I think in November of 2011, uh, my dear mom uh, gave me a suitcase filled with all the artifacts. Now this is 33 years later. I never had a PR machine. I never had like Bill Gates' parents, United Way, his mother on the board promoting him, right? right? But 33 years later, my dear mom was dying of pulmonary fibrosis in a suitcase. She had saved all these artifacts of all my invention of email. And the editor of Time Magazine, by the way, still to this day, uh, John, the only journalist to go through all the materials and he wrote an article called The Man Who Invented Email. Uh-huh. And then the Smithsonian on February 16, 2012 invited me, they did an honoring ceremony and they had a wonderful event where I was recognized as the inventor of email and went into the Smithsonian. And then a young Washington Post reporter wrote a beautiful article called Dr. Shiva Yandere, honored as the inventor of email. And that's when the proverbial SHIT hits the fan okay <laughs> because over those 33 years when I didn't promote myself the narrative was that the military industrial complex had invented email by the way they claim to have invented everything okay of course yeah and that leads us really I think what we want to because the facts are so obvious it's not even black and white on this issue wrote all the code to capture the office email system inbox outbox every feature now I did it as a 14-year-old kid, that's a nick against me. My color of the skin in some ways may have a nick against me. And it was done in Newark, New Jersey before I came to MIT. It was done outside of the bounds of the military industrial scientific establishment. By the way, Philo Farnsworth went through the same thing. He didn't have to deal with the race issue, okay? But very similar. He invented TV, TV, a 14-year-old kid in Franklin, Idaho when he saw the cows making the Z pattern, and he said, yes. wow, that's pretty cool, I can use that with tubes and do a raster screen. And he created TV in the similar conditions. Where did email come from and TV come from? Where they did come from the tri- triangle, not of the military industrial academic complex, it came out of a very different triangle. And that triangle was of a loving family who gave me support. Same with Philo Farnsworth, an incredible mentor who believed in me and gave me access to amazing technology in 1978 that very few people even had access to and an amazing set of uh, a public school teacher who fought with the administration John in my school so I could travel 30 miles 40 miles to Newark most parents are afraid to send their kids down the street so email did occur in a collaboration but not their bogus collaboration of the military industrial academic complex or As we talk about the coronavirus, you know, uh, the solutions are going to come from Big Pharma and Bill Gates and the CDC, right? That's what this is about. So when I started sharing the truth about the immune system, the coronavirus, what do some of the absolute morons, absolute uh, people who are decrepit, who've never done math, who've never done engineering, these are people who work for the New York Times. These are people who work for no-nonsense rags. What do they do? They attack me for not inventing email. That's what they do, John, to try to discredit me, but to everyone listening, the, the story of the invention of email will must be told and must be shared the truth about it because it's not my story, it's about your story, John, from your background, everyone's story. It's about where does innovation really occur because the facts are black and white. And when this stuff went into the Smithsonian, the, the, the abuse I underwent, John, all my four degrees at MIT didn't matter anymore. All the fact that I won a Fulbright scholarship, all the facts that I was on the front page. Immediately after this, hell was unleashed for me by people like Gawker Media. Remember that rag that I went, do. who who put out sex tape videos of of uh, of uh, of uh, Hulk Hogan, who right. did clickbaiting. Well, they started putting out nonsense saying that I'm a fraud, I'm an A-S-S-H-O-L-E, a s s h o l e loon. All these horrible words, and blogs came out which said, what a f. You know, I'm not going to use the words shameless cretin this person should be hanged by his curry stained fingernails <sighs> My goodness this is in yeah. 2012 and by the way to anyone listening you can go look at this because we documented all of this the level of racist abuse that i underwent because i dared simply go into the smithsonian and share my content i did not want fame or fortune for this by the way i didn't make a penny off the invention of email why because copyright law does not protect ideas copyright law protects the literal work, so others copied my ideas afterwards. Now, the invention of email, just to be clear, would have occurred anyway if it wasn't for me, John, but I was the first to do it. And it occurred in, in Newark, New Jersey by a 14 year old, you know, uh, American mm-hmm. kid. So the, the essence of this is that the level of abuse that took place, John, is that people calling me these names? In fact, on Wikipedia, if you go up there and you simply try to even put the link into the Time magazine article, put the link in, the 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 deep state people who control Wikipedia, and you should go, people should go look at uh, when when you go at core narratives, would rip rip down the, uh, any truth, any facts, would uh, try to destroy me as a scientist. In fact, if you go on Wikipedia, uh, 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 you will see the level of abuse there complete changing of history and in fact a senior wikipedia editor who was an honest guy wrote to me and this is what he wrote to me uh, to my assistant he goes "Uh, i seem to have stepped into a mess by accident as an experienced wikipedia editor i had a look at the email article and was surprised that you hadn't received any credit for your contributions since i've had a great deal of experience using wikipedia articles i got right to work and added several suitable editions to provide credit to your contributions right away my edits were deleted without discussion not edited to improve them but just flat out deleted and this is the interesting thing john this is how controversial he says this is and everyone listening should really understand these next sentences this gentleman says he is saying that the invention of email truth about it or him even trying to share the truth is as controversial he goes he goes quote this is the kind of behavior an editor encounters when editing an article on the second amendment abortion or other extremely hot topics the response to my edits has included personal attacks calling me ignorant reckless and the like although most editors have been less insulting than that they have generally been aggressive in rapidly deleting my additions so that's what took place John that is a fax the issue in this is I invented the first email system and I never wanted credit but you know what I will demand credit and I will take it because the facts are true and the facts are not just about the invention of email, but what we wanted to talk about is where does innovation come from? Who is determining who are the innovators? Who is anointing them? And what I would argue is if you look at what's going on with the coronavirus, the fact that you have one Emperor Fauci, you have a guy like Bill Gates, who frankly has no knowledge in the biological sciences. I have four degrees from MIT and a PhD in biological engineering in a department which is rated number one in the world in the biological engineering sciences and so here when i put out actual facts which do not match with the silence of the academics because the academic establishment will not say anything against fauci because they owe money to him and they depend on him for for grants
1: so- it it's follows the same dynamic as climate change once you get this kind of terror uh, dynamic going you're you're afraid if the money dries up you don't feed your family and so you you put up to shut up you shut up and put up and that's what you do and that's that's uh, that's been a truism of all human history I, I watched it happen when I spent some time living in the Soviet Union people were were terrified they did what they were told and that's 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 that
0: yeah, so, um, so the, I think the essence of the invention of email is to me, it took me a while to process all this, it's really the essence of what it means to be human. And that's where we're at. Are we going to head into a world where we are humans or automatons, free people or slaves? And this is not even a dramatic issue because if you go to the essence of where does truth and science come from, where does knowledge come from? And if we look back at the true history of this, and in fact, if we go back probably a couple hundred years ago, most of the great knowledge or innovations came from hobbyists, people working in their basements, people working in what you would call the fringes, people sometimes sitting quietly and observing nature. That's where great science and great innovation come from, be it email or be it TV or others. It was people tinkering. It wasn't driven by this massive uh, power, profit and control. That's one of the things, John, that has really, really denigrated science and innovation. And if you think about it, if you uh, tell people over and over again that when you go to Harvard, then you're smart. When you go to MIT, then you're smart, right? When you go to Silicon Valley and you look and dress like a nerd, then you're intelligent. They've created these archetypes. And if you are a working class person in Newark, New Jersey, by the way the windshield wiper you know that whole story created by a michigan mechanic and two mit professors went and stole it from him and right. created the control systems engineering department right. the the truth is that the consolidation of where the origin of science and innovation come from those narratives are extremely important to discuss that's why the invention of email must be talked about that it was created by me by in newark because it's not about me it's about the origin and credit does matter because credit Uh, determines where funding goes. Credit determines where the power really should lie. And if we now move to talking about science here, what we really start discovering is starting around 1940s, around the same time we saw the consolidation of science and innovation, that's where the consolidation of uh, establishment science occurred post-World War II. You know, Sputnik had gone up, right? We had the Manhattan Project, so we... So, uh, so people said, wow, we could do these massive projects, right, uh, organizing massive number of scientists, big science, big academia. So by 1970, the Mansfield Amendment was passed, which basically uh, moved large amounts of money of basic research um, into the political organizations of the National Institute of Health and the National Science Foundation. You had people like a guy called James Shannon, who was a, uh, a PhD, a scientist, but was very ambitious he truly wanted to consolidate power in the biological sciences and the National Institute of Health and one of the ways that they did that uh, John was to put everything as an infectious disease okay everything became it uh, was called the era of virus hunters and bacteria hunters because you know why it was easier to always put the target as a virus and the reason was remember polio was nineteen fifties the polio virus is one of the quote-unquote big victories of big medicine And the decision was made, wow, we've solved polio, now what do we do? Well, cancer was on the rise. So all of those people who were virus hunters and bacterial hunters moved into the game of cancer. And the theory was retroviruses created cancer. And there's a a very uh, esteemed scientist by the name of Peter Duisberg. Peter's the one who discovered the first retrovirus or the first oncogene. And he even said, wait a minute, this is not true. He goes, everyone's trying to find the infectious cause of cancer. He goes, it's not true. But the reality is, John, that when you fund more and more research with bigger and bigger instrumentation, you were able to create fake science. You could always find some bacteria in you, John. So, how does this work? You have a disease. Well, you know what? All of us have all sorts of germs in us. So, if you have heart disease or cancer, you could say, oh, I found this little virus over here. That must be the causation for cancer. So, thus began the, the the advance of what we call consensus-based science. We moved away from the scientific method because it served the interests of power, profit, and control. So you talked about the uh, climate change stuff, right? Climate does change. Greenhouse gas, you know, uh, CO2 is a greenhouse gas. It's absolutely true. Um, greenhouse gases do increase temperature, but the issue is how much? That is a scientific question that is an engineering question in fact it's not a climate science question it's a fluid mechanics and radiative physics question so what ended up happening was uh, people started getting into modeling of climate the, the guy James Hansen who was at NASA uh, doing this he actually was uh, losing funding so he went to the EPA got more funding and he's the one who created, created the entire climate change uh, narrative that CO2 is a pollutant started doing these models and if you actually look at even the IPCC reports, you find out it's fake science, because what is science and what is evidence? Well, evidence is unambiguous prediction. That is a definition of evidence. Evidence means you come up with a model or a theory of how a behavior is occurring in nature, and it's unambiguous. Um, we know the elliptical orbits of planets now, right, John? We know right. uh, force equals mass times acceleration, which Newton discovered. Well. If you look at true science, when an apple falls from a tree, we can predict exactly where that apple will fall, right? There is no, it's not like one model predicts the apple will be suspended two feet off the ground, another four feet, another seven feet, right? That would be indeterminate science. However, when you look at the climate change stuff, you actually go read it, they have 40 different predictions of how much Arctic ice will melt. 40. One says 0%, another says 100%, and there's all flavors in between. This is fake science. However, MIT gets 20, for example, just one of 20 to $40 million dollars if you put climate science on anything. 20 to $40 million dollars out of a big budget of $2 billion flows to academic institutions. So you have big money, big science, and academics rely on that funding. So they're not gonna say anything. I have a lot of my friends, you know, MIT colleagues who are fluid guys, they go, look, we know this stuff isn't true, but we're not gonna say anything.
1: Right. You, you you must know he may have been one of your colleagues one of your professors Richard Lindzen from MIT I, I
0: know Dick uh, I've yeah. spoken to Dick many times he and I built a friendship uh, uh, by the way to your uh, to people who don't know who Dick Lindzen is Dick Lindzen is one of the he was one of the I think the youngest person accepted to the National Academy of Engineering and Science or yep. Engineering or Science um, he solved a very famous problem uh, but Dick was ahead of I believe the meteorology group at MIT so I had done a video, which you may, you may have seen, if people go out there to truthfreedomhealth.com, there's a video I did completely exposing the nonsense of the Paris Accords, how the Paris Accords were actually intended to, not only intended, but they motivate uh, China to double their pollution. So if you read the Paris Accords, China today uh, pollutes around 11 billion carbon metric tons, and they're allowed to pollute up to 22 carbon metric tons. That is what is actually going on. And by 2030, China will have to buy carbon credits, which means those carbon equity carbon, uh, credit on the equity market will explode and people will become trillionaires. So there's no sense to the Paris Accords. It allows pollution. Meanwhile, very dumb people in the media, very quote-unquote journalists, very dumb people in the New York Times, you know, attack, as though the, uh, attack uh, people like myself and others who are, uh, who expose the Paris Accords. It actually supports pollution. We can all agree we want to lower pollution. So again, brought to you by big science, big academia, big scientific establishment. And when we go to the coronavirus. That's what we're witnessing again. The same fake historians who had built a false narrative. That email came out of the military industrial complex. And when my stuff went into the Smithsonian, it was like a new skull was found in Africa. These same people are the same uh, academic elite who want to promote the climate, quote unquote, change narrative that CO2 is a pollutant, which really is going to inspire the uh, things like uh, people want to do in Boston, John, right? The, the, the governor of Boston wants to put in this transportation climate initiative, which is basically going to boost up uh, uh, the cost of gas by 50 cents to a buck. When, when if you actually look at Massachusetts, the entire, the entire infrastructure is breaking down. We got an F minus minus. Okay. Uh, by the American Society of Civil Engineers. And then when you look at the coronavirus, you have a scientific establishment which thrives on the false narrative that it's that the inf- that the virus is the one that attacks your immune system and the only way to protect it is through vaccines. vaccines, vaccines, vaccines. A one-dimensional solution because a vaccine narrative, is necessary for Big Pharma because their entire business model is burning up right now. As I've talked about, Big Pharma is losing incredible amounts of money from pharmaceuticals because their products are unsafe, they're not discovering enough, in fact the FDA is not even allowing new pharma products to get to the market because of side effects. So they spend three to five billion dollars developing a drug. It comes out, massive side effects, and you and I can sue them. Well the vaccines come, go through a different regulatory process. They don't have to go through the same amount of risks. And moreover, the interesting thing is, thanks to Ted Kennedy and the people who controlled the Senate and the House, they forced Reagan to sign a bill because it was shoved under another bill, they created the vaccine courts. So we, so people who get injured by vaccines can't even sue pharma companies. So think about this, pharma companies have low risk, no, virtually no liability, And that's what we've created. And this was brought to you by the scientific establishment, which does not want to discuss the fact about the fact that it is a compromised immune system that we should focus on. And that discourse, John, is not at all in the national psyche of what needs to be focused on. Out of the quote-unquote epidemic, which is affecting a very small part of the population who are immunocompromised and the elderly and people with pre-existing conditions we've shut down the entire economy and the purpose of this it's so obvious to anyone who comes from the streets like you and I do right <laughs> right is you know right. this is common sense is that you have another agenda because when common sense doesn't make sense there's always another agenda as one of my mentors told me
1: Right, you know, it's it is it's the classic shakedown. It's the classic fear. I mean, when I was living that time in the Soviet Union, it's it's now you substitute the KGB for the virus. So that's what's out there now. You you have to you have to you have to fear them. What I've noticed, and it's very very troubling, is how successful this narrative, this vaccine only narrative, is, in and how the social distancing has separated the it separated us from actually being able to discuss common sense with our loved ones, our friends, our neighbors. So we become isolated. Uh, And that that gives them more power to to do that. When I you hear Fauci, maybe not Burks, but you hear Fauci and Shirley Gates alluding to that at some point in the future, if there is a vaccine, you need to be certified as vaccinated and with that certification doors will open for you or close for you maybe you can't get on a plane maybe you can't go to university maybe I mean it's this is it's truly Orwellian we are at this confluence of Orwell and uh, uh, I mean I, I can I can list all of the all of the books that we're at that intersection though
0: Yeah, someone just sent me a text message this morning and it's at a coffee store Let me find it and it basically says you cannot enter the coffee store if you are uh, no mask no service, okay? Yeah, yeah. Now, look, I grew up in and everyone listening in the, in the audience should understand. Do you remember uh, in Boston, John, I mean I think the term Boston Brahmins, you heard that term, right? Of course. So to everyone listening, you should know that there's a term called Boston Brahmins. And where did that come from? Well, Brahmins are the top of the caste system in India. That's the term that refers to the top of the caste system. And there's so much uh, analogies and direct relationships between the American Revolution and the same oppressor, which was a British East India Company. It was a company, which was the same company which was exploiting people in India, right? The British East India Company. And um, if you, and, and the connection also, and you know, India has this caste system we were considered untouchables in India, um, John. And to everyone to understand that, what that means is there are the Brahmins, the priesthood on the top, the next level were the kings, today they're the politicians, the Brahmins of today would be the elites, the academic elites, or the people on the inside like the Gateses, the Fauci's, right, who advise the presidents or the Kennedys, right? They're the elites, the monarchists. And then you have the kings or the today's politicians, and below that, uh, in this pyramid were the military who protected the king and below that were the business folks and below that were everyone else, the untouchables, untouchables at the bottom. And that's what we were considered. We were considered the untouchables, which meant we did, all, we were supposed to designate to do all the crap work, okay? Which means if you're born as a coconut picker, I had to be the coconut picker the rest of my life. That was the caste. If you were a carpenter, that's what you were supposed to be. My parents were quite extraordinary people. Uh, John, my mother broke from that. She came from a broken household. This is a woman now, a dark-skinned Indian woman, gets a master's in statistics. Total unbelievable, one in a trillion. My dad grew up in war-torn Burma and becomes an engineer. Again, totally breaks out of his cast mold. And both of those two mutations meet to create me, okay? Um, And we make it to the United States. So for me, everything is icing on the cake because of the fact that my, what my parents did, and I've always had this deep desire to fight and to uh, serve John because I knew where I came from, and particularly then growing up in working class neighborhoods in, in Patterson and Newark and uh, you know, Clifton. And my parents kept moving finally the last three years to one of the wealthiest neighborhoods, where I, you know, public school system called um, Livingston, New Jersey. But the bottom line was that my parents escaped the caste system of India where you were delegated if you were born, you know, it was a birth lottery. And what are we creating here in the United States today? We're creating that same system where a Bill Gates, who knows zero about the biological sciences, who actually didn't invent anything, he, he stole DOS. I think you and I were talking, we, it was thievery. He paid, his mother was on the board of United Way, knew that IBM, through their relationship, was looking for an operating system. He found some kids somewhere who had built it paid him some money, bought it, and flipped it. So this is something people need to understand. But he was a Harvard dropout, and, his, and you can look at his family history, right? But that was cool, right? He was framed as a Harvard dropout. But Steve Ballmer was, was his ruthless a sidekick who basically built Microsoft for him. But the bottom line is, if you look at the quote-unquote innovation, there wasn't really much innovative. It was essentially taking something from one guy and flipping it over to IBM which was a monolithic company. That's how Gates really built his esteem. It didn't come from bottoms up from a kid in Newark or a kid in Franklin, Idaho, actually creating things or a guy like Nikolai Tesla. So what we have today is this total, total consolidation of science owned by a few set of people. And that consolidation, to everyone listening, people need to understand, it's not even like thousands of people. It's actually five or six people now.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So Fauci and Francis Collins can literally work with three of the major university presidents, MIT president, Rafael Reif, by the way, who took money from Epstein and after he was convicted still took money from him, the president of Harvard and probably the president of Stanford or Yale, depending on who you're looking. And those five people control science policy in the United States.
1: Mm -hmm. And when you look at Fauci and look at some of his history, It's if he were actually working on his own, he's he's been wrong again and again and again. And instead of getting fired or you know saying it's time for another job, he gets more money, more power, more prestige for being incorrect. So that's right.
0: It's actually um, someone just sent me a, a video, a picture. Of Tedros and all these people meeting with the Chinese, and in the distance is the statue of Shiva. I don't know if you saw it; it's going viral on the internet. Um, I, I don't, you know. I I was given this name Shiva, and it's quite interesting as I grow uh, older, John. I realize perhaps why it fits me. Shiva is known as a destroyer of ignorance. It's a destruction of ignorance, and and you know, Shiva has in, in Indian mytholo- mythology a a trushala, you know, and he pierces darkness with it. And we live in an age of such illusion nowadays, right? We absolutely have illusion where using very, very stupid people in the mainstream media, some of the dumbest people I've met, Mm -hmm. um, you use very stupid people, very ignorant people who went to schools where they got their political science degrees or some degree in journalism. And these are very young kids, 22, 23. They're owned by an editor and that editor reports up to a publisher and they are literally the war machines, the front-end war machines for the deep state.
1: That, so, that's exactly true and you know it, it started probably in the uh, maybe in the late 60's, there was, there was a real sea change in how journalists became journalists. It used to be somewhat well a, a meritocracy, it was kind of a trade it was like being a good electrician. You know, you started out and you worked your way up, and you had one job and one job only, and that's to tell people who weren't there what happened. But in the late 60s and in the early 70s, there was this kind of insidious amalgam of the journalism schools, the education schools, and the schools of social work at the major universities, and they all kind of became intermingled. And I, I actually went to BU journalism school, and the professor whom I admired most the first day of class kind of asked everyone in the class why are you here what do you want to do why do you want to be a journalist and myself and only one other person he he segregated on the other end of the room because I said I like to travel and it would be kind of cool to get paid for it he put me on one end and I can't remember what the other guy said but everybody else said things to the effect of I want to change the world I want to make a difference I want to advocate for something that I believe to be good and true and right and he looked at those people and he said you know you should you should leave this program you should go to the School of Social Work you should become a teacher you should go get a degree in poli-sci you shouldn't be in a journalism school because advocacy has no place in telling people who weren't there what happened but, of course, none of them did, they all probably, probably work for CNN, though, so... That's yeah, nice yeah that,
0: that's an interesting point you bring up, John. I mean, uh, you know, science was supposed to be the field of where it was one of the noble areas for telling the truth. That was what was the goal of science, you're supposed to do research, and in, in some ways that was true, quote-unquote, journalism. If you look at the history of science and the history of, 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 of journalism, they actually go sort of hand-in-hand because the scientists were actually wrote right they actually drew pictures and wrote they also organized they did publishing Leonardo right he just didn't he just didn't do science and research he also wrote so the there's an intimate relationship between the publishing industry and science and somewhere that bifurcated where journalists became now what you call fake news and scientists became academics and fake science and it's fascinating um, and, and you know, when I decided to run for Senate, John in Massachusetts, and I've always been an activist in a, a, separate from being activist in the sense, um, trying to use the human w- the world that we live in also as a laboratory uh, to understand you know what's what truth is. So when I was at MIT in 1983, uh, 84 remember a guy called Jesse Jackson ran for office. remember him?
1: Yes, he did.
0: And when Jesse Jackson ran, You know, I was a a young idealist kid, and I said, wow, Jesse Jackson sounds like he's saying some good stuff, right? He sounds like he's talking about anti-establishment, because many of us who came from working class backgrounds and from the background, we were always looking for fighters, (laughs) you know? Um, uh, People were radical, revolutionary fighters, because, you know, we wanted to really change the world significantly. I didn't understand why there was a caste system, because I saw things differently than a typical kid who came from perhaps a very wealthy suburb. So when I saw Je- Jesse Jackson run, a bunch of us we said, "Wow, this guy's cool. He's anti-establishment." But what did Jesse Jackson do? At the last minute, he gives all of his votes to Mondale. Remember that? And he gives. Well,
1: he, got, st- he got bribed. He got bribed with a plane. He got bribed. Yeah. He, they asked him what he wanted, and he said, "I want a jet," and he got it.
0: Is that what it was?
1: That's what it was. It was a jet. Wow. He got his own private jet.
0: Wow. Yeah. So he's a complete, you know. Uh, so we saw that occur, and as an as a as a and I think it was 19 or 19-year-old 19 kid. I said, wow. And I said, what I realized was there's not only the establishment, John. There's the not-so-obvious establishment. The establishment that the establishment creates.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And in the United States, the not-so-obvious establishment, they do it on the left and the right. And on the left, it's the Jesse Jacksons. It's the Al Sharptons. It's the Kennedys. The Kennedys have become sort of institutionalized, not so obvious establishment, as though they're the only ones who can fight for things. And so I saw this phenomenon, and that's why I never voted, John, ever in my life. When Trump ran, I said, wow, this guy is bashing both parties, if you remember that, right? He wasn't, uh, just, he wasn't just attacking, and he was relentless. He didn't, once he got on the national stage, I said, well, he's probably going to tone it down, and he didn't. So the first time I ever voted, registered as an independent, voted for him. I was invited to his inauguration. Uh, after I heard a speech, I registered as a uh, Republican and ran here in Massachusetts, as a Republican. But the establishment here was so afraid of a, uh, an inventor, a scientist, when the Republican establishment should have completely embraced me, John. I represent, if anything, true Republicanism, right? Meritocracy, not insider trading. And as people know, I had to run as a Republican, as an independent, they had a guy run uh, who actually had photoshopped a picture with Trump. There's three hands in the picture, okay? Dirty deal, we called them. So I ran as an independent. We ended up getting 100,000 votes, bottoms up, hundreds and thousands of volunteers helping us on the bottom. We put up those signs, only the real Indian can defeat the fake Indian. Extraordinary campaign. It wasn't about race. I was the one who sent Warren 3DNA test kits, you know, on like Laura Ingram and Jesse Waters and uh, Stuart Varney. And in response to that, the Republican establishment in, Ma- in Massachusetts uh, pushed this guy deal, put mugshots of me up, mugshots of a case that was outright dismissed by the district attorney to try to present me as some wife beater. That's the kind of stuff. Attack me that I didn't invent email. Same thing. Try to discredit me. But in spite of that, we got 100,000 votes as independents and both parties, John, colluded to keep me off the debate stage. That's what happened. When I should have been, when I I'm a son of Massachusetts. I've been here since I was a 17 year old kid.
1: Right. Well, Cre- that's what they do, and that's why they they that's the that's the M O of getting rid of Donald Trump. The deep state isn't Democrat. It's not Republican. It's two sides of the same coin, and that's why they fear him so much because he is, you know, he is that uh, going into the temple and kicking over the table. Exactly. The changers. That's who he is. Yeah.
0: And I, I think, if, if, uh, for, for those of you listening carefully, I think, John, um, on Easter, that's the picture. I did a whole thing on what Christ means to me. Christ was ultimately, you know, uh, you know, everyone has their religious position. I have my own personal re- relationship with Christ. But even on earth, he was pretty much black and white. And very few Christian religious leaders want to focus on the money changer incident, right? Because it may, they may have to put their mirror on their own face. right but the bottom line is that we're at a point in history where it is black and white it's so black and white where the invention of email took place it's so black and white what's going on right now with Fauci with the you know with all of this going on and that's why when I decided to run John we're running again this time as Republicans we want to hijack the Republican Party it's run by a very very sleazy guy called Jim Lyons who acts as though he's fighting for Trump never even wanted a lawn sign of Trump on his lawn now he's the biggest so-called Trumper. He's got Charlie Baker's face on the Mass GOP website. You scroll down, then it's Trump. You know, he, he, he's promoting another guy who's got 100 Twitter followers. When I decided to run, people knew I would beat Markey. So then, remember, it's one party in Massachusetts. If anyone thinks that there's two parties, you're very naive. Charlie Baker, Bill Weld, the Democrats are all one. In fact, Bill Weld, the Republican, has endorsed Joe Kennedy on the Democrat side. Right. so I'm their most danger to them to both parties and we have an enormous campaign because bottoms up, John, what's happened is we've interconnected truth freedom, truth, freedom and health truth, freedom and health truth, freedom and health and what do I mean by that? without freedom, without the right to debate without the right to free speech without the right to open discourse we will never get truth we will get scientific consensus which is right. nonsense You know, it is
1: nonsense because it should be that Science creates consensus, not consensus creates science.
0: Well, well, you know, it's, it's one of my great heroes, Richard Feynman said, you know, this is the way science works. And he used to do it as a New York accent, right? I can't do it, but he used to say, look, you come up with a guess, which is called a hypothesis. Then you go do your experiments. And if your data doesn't match your experiment, uh, I mean, you're, you're, it doesn't matter how good looking you are. It doesn't matter if your name is Kennedy or Kerry or Bush or Clinton, you're wrong. It doesn't matter and that is a scientific method. So what we do is suppress freedom. We annihilate people, but they got a problem with me, John. I have four degrees from MIT. I'm a Fulbright Scholar. I created the first email system. I won every major award at MIT. You know, I was nominated for the National Medal of Science and uh, Technology and Innovation. I was recognized by the Indian government as the first outstanding scientist technologist of Indian origin. And I, I can articulate. And more importantly, John, I'm not willing to be a good Indian. I still remember. <laughs> I'm not willing to shake my for, head. For sure. I'm not that's willing for to sure. shake my head and, and sit in the lotus position and tell people to get whipped upside the head, which is what Gandhi did. One of the most notorious racists in human history. Okay? He was a racist in South Africa. He didn't help the poor blacks. He didn't help the poor, uh, uh, you know, uh, Hindus. You know, he was parachuted in to manipulate the vast majority of Indian people to transfer power from the uh, white men with crowns to brown men with white hats. And so we have false leaders always, fake leaders, not so obvious establishment leaders. So freedom, that's one part of our campaign. And in order to do that, we need digital rights, which means the postal service should actually become the infrastructure for providing all of us digital rights, not just postal mail. That's not why they were created. They were created to ensure I could communicate you through with email, through Facebook, and YouTube. So there needs to be a parallel system the Postal Service should do. Second, we need to have citizen science. That's what our campaign stands for, Shiva for Senate. People want to know they should go to shivaforsenate.com, but our campaign is about citizen science. We need to destroy the scientific establishment, that can happen by saying when institutions get federal funding. Their data is my data and your data, John. It should go up into the cloud. You and I should be able to analyze it. I really want to know where is all the climate change data. I want to see all the satellite temperatures. I want to download it into Excel and analyze it. There's a lot of smart people. There's billions of smart people on this planet. There's not, Bill Gates is not the only freaking guy who's going to tell us what to do. So citizen science. And third, we need to eliminate all the middlemen in the healthcare system, the GPOs and the PBMs. And we need to decentralize medicine back to the edges, like my grandmother who was a healer in that village. It should go back to you and I having a conversation with our practitioner. And from well, that, health emerges, not mandated medicine, Chinese, you know, di- dictatorial medicine top down.
1: Well, that, so that brings brings me to the subject of chloroquine and hydrochloroquine. I don't, you know, I'm, again, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor. But I do know that it is a medicine that has been used, its side effects are well known, and should it not be a discussion and a decision between doctor and patient, as opposed to a top-down edict by a bureaucrat? Yes,
0: yeah, so, so, so anyway, um, by the way, um, I think this conversation, um, uh, to uh, people listening, I'm talking to a friend of mine, John, from Boston, and, and we're both from very similar uh, working class immigrant backgrounds, and we're really discussing the state of science and innovation in India, and we're talking right now, I mean, in, in the United States, for that matter, globally. Um, when you look at hydroxy, uh, hydroxychloroquine, um, or you look at vitamin D, or you look at vitamin A, or you look at vaccines, whatever the intervention is, why is it that certain people are trying to demand that this be state mandated? That's where you're really asking, right, John? Why should this, come, why should this come bottom, exactly. why and should this? Mean, I- I mean
1: if the fundamental, just look at it a different way, if the fundamental argument for a woman who bureaucrats can say can have an abortion in the ninth month is based on the notion that no one should get in between doctor and patient, well then no one should get in between doctor and patient if they want to try this hydrochloroquine or plain chloroquine or plus zinc or plus z it should be that personal decision between healer and patient.
0: Yeah, so it's fascinating why it, it's, you, you see the divide. If you watch people walking around with masks and not masks, I would say it's a political divide. We have essentially, with this maskless and the mask people, we're essentially marking those people who are dissenters. It's a very, it's a very interesting phenomenon. I was driving around yesterday I noticed this. Yeah. Um, but the bottom line is the people who are pro-choice, it's fascinating ninety percent of those people are the same people who are not pro-choice they're actually pro-vaccine mandates it's fascinating to observe and these are your multiracial liberal aristocracy it's it's an elite group of people who think they know better who actually think that they know science and the reality is just like the fact that they attribute inventions and innovations to the military industrial complex these same people attribute the diktats of where innovation should come from, who decides what innovation is, to the uh, to the same set of people, right? That those people should be, I'm just going to, uh, I just have to start up my uh, Instagram again, one second. Okay. Um, one second, sorry about that. Yep, that's okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, the same set of people who do that are the same set of people who want to attribute the, the origin of innovation to, um, or the origin of solutions, one second, I don't have to do, there we go, sorry, sorry about that, Um, yeah, so they want to, oops, am I in the right way, I'm sorry, one second, Sorry about that, guys. I just have to start my Instagram feed to our Instagram followers here. There we go. Okay. Sorry about that, Instagram folks. Sorry about that. I'm back on Instagram. So I, I think the bottom line is that where does, how does health actually emerge? That's a fundamental question. And it goes again to how, where does innovation emerge? Where does science emerge? So if you look at health, if you look at truth, which is science, And if you look at innovation, which really comes from freedom. Uh, Many years ago, John, I was invited by uh, when I was in India. uh, I'm I'm sorry, when I finished up my PhD in 2007. By the way, I've been here since I was a kid, seven-year-old kid. I'm I'm an American citizen. I'm a kid who grew up here. But in 2007, after I finished my PhD, I, I should do a whole separate thing on this. But I went back to India on a Fulbright which was featured on the front page of MIT, you know, it said a guy armed with four degrees from MIT, one of our graduates, is wanting to go back to India to study Indian medicine. They found that quite weird, why I wanted to do that. And it was in many ways honor to my grandmother, who was this traditional systems uh, healer. So I went back, you know, did did a cool project, made some really cool discoveries. On the way back to the United States, John, I was asked by the prime minister of India's director general of the largest scientific institution. It was a Prime Minister appointment by the Prime Minister of India to um, stay in India for one to two years to really help build their innovation center. They said, hey, you've got four degrees. You've invented all these companies. Can you help us? And the largest scientific institution in India had gotten billions of dollars of funding and they weren't producing any innovation. So within about five months, I put together a whole plan. But within six months, John, I realized a massive amount of corruption. This is before Prime Minister Modi took over, sort of the Trump of India, mm-hmm. that the level of corruption in there suffocated scientists. There were great scientists in India, but the way the nepotism worked, they wouldn't even let innovation come from below. Amazing people. So I wrote a, uh, a report. It got accidentally released to the press, and I was fired within literally three hours. My email was shut down, then under death threats, Mm-hmm. I mean these are mafia type guys. I had to take a night train to the border of Nepal, uh, cross over, cross into Katmandu, you know, across Kathmandu and made it home and when I got home the editors of Nature, one of the most prestigious science journals in the world, had me write a commentary and the commentary I wrote was innovation demands freedom. Innovation demands freedom, why America innovates and India may never. Okay, They removed the latter part but they published it and then the editor of Nature in India was attacked by the Prime Minister's office and said, if you don't remove that down, we're going to destroy you. And she oh. took down my article. So in many ways, the, the point was the article we got out on the internet, it did get published. But the point is that innovation or freedom are so intermittently connected. So if we suffocate freedom, which is what's going on right now, you, you, you suffocate all these, basically scientists have become, the good scientists are gone. What remains are academics. Dick Lindzen is a scientist, but the majority of them are academics. Dick uses the word there, practice the oldest profession now. Okay? That's what MIT has become. That's for sure. It's the oldest profession, and people don't know what the oldest profession is, just type it in. Okay? (laughs) And that's what we've created. We've created the oldest profession in academia. Fauci is a prostitute. That's what he is. He's a prostitute that has existed over six presidents. And he represents the epitome of the scientific establishment, because to survive in academia, you have to become a politician like him. He's far more, he's a hundred X more politician than Donald Trump. He's he's existed. Donald
1: Trump isn't a politician. Exactly, but Fauci is. He's a builder, he's a builder. He builds things, he doesn't destroy them.
0: Exactly, and Fauci is a politician. And in fact, I think Henry Kissinger said, if you want to learn politics, go into academia first.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So we have a consummate politician in Fauci, who does not want to discuss about the immune system. So when you talk about hydroxychloroquine, you know, and why he doesn't want to push that. And you know, I've given my opinion on it. I believe vitamin D and A in the letter I wrote to the president, I, I said we should put the economy back. And there's a systems approach to doing this. So you don't shatter, it's not one size fits all, which is, which is the model of Fauci. The model of the fake science model of big pharma Fauci is one size fits all. What does one size fits all mean? One size fits all means that everyone gets the same medicine. And that is the medieval model of science. Starting in 2003, when the field of systems biology was created, we realized your body, John, is different than my body versus someone else. Even though you may have the same disease, you may have to treat them very differently. And because of the complexity of the immune system, because of the complexity of the body, so the only way truly to deliver real health is decentralized. You can't have mandated models because then you're treating someone like a statistical blob and you're going to create injuries. That is why the vaccine courts were created to indemnify the vaccine manufacturers because injuries were being created. So we've created a world now. It's really the top-down model, the Chinese model of existence. Everyone's a blob. Everyone should dress in these particular uniforms. Everyone wears masks. Everyone will have their ID card. You won't be allowed to go to the gym. You won't be able to get your driver's card, driver's license. You won't be able to travel. Your passport is going to be your vaccine card. That's where this country or the world is headed to. And this is happening right before our eyes because of the violation of truth, the violation of freedom, and the violation of health. It's centralization of power. And that's why I believe, John, my running for U.S. Senate, it's not a U.S. Senate election anymore. It's an election for a a guy who represents you and me, who's from the working class, who g- grew up with nothing, who's a fighter, like all of us are. And that's why I think the videos I've been doing, John, have capt- have gone worldwide. Because I'm sharing the truth, I'm sharing science, I'm educating people, and the politicians, 70% of them, by the way, I'm running against three lawyers, John. Three freaking <laughs> lawyers, okay? Kennedy and, and, and Marky, and I'm not even going to give the other guy anything because he's a dope, okay? Brought to you by Jim Lyons and Charlie Baker. That's where they're coming from. Put in there to make sure I don't get the Republican nomination, because they know if I win the Republican nomination, I will win. I will win against either Kennedy or Malarkey. One of those guys. <laughs> Malar- yeah.
1: I, I, I call him that as well.
0: <laughs> well, you, well, one is a joke and the other one's a Malarkey. Okay. You know, uh, this the little boy grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth, fifty-one million dollars already in his bank account. You and I didn't grow up with that. We had to work for everything we had. Like you talked about the plumbers and the electricians. There was a time in this country where skill was revered. You had to put in your time. You had to do your math problems. You had to do your, you know, you had to understand physics. The founders of this country, Washington, knew what sine and cosine meant, right? He was a surveyor. Yes, he did. So we have a world right now where we don't value... Or, or I think we still do. I think we have a world right now. It's a struggle between the parasites and the producers. That's where we're at right now. And it's coming to a head. And I hope that I can help really throw a lot of gasoline on that,
1: well, <laughs> you know? You're, you've been doing that for the past And, and really that's, bringing that to a head sure. because
0: we need to burn down the parasites. We need to wipe. They are the real virus. There is a real virus. And it's a deep state, it's big pharma, it's Fauci, it's the people who control places like MIT and Harvard and all the big institutions. They must be destroyed. And I mean that not in a violent way, I mean that in a spiritual way, in a philosophical way. Because they are destroying the soul of humanity at a very deep level. Because what they want us to do is to all become automatons. That is their, that is their direction of all of this. It's not to be human anymore. It's to deny where innovation comes from and that's why they hate the truth about the invention of email because it goes against it destroys everything that they believe in or everything that they've attempted to manufacture
1: you know let's just roll back a bit if we can and just talk about the virus the COVID-19 sure. virus and you know, from the fauci Burks narrative from the media narrative it's it's been portrayed as this apocalyptic virus that that needs to be you know beaten controlled, you know, even using the war like a war on it. And we have to ignore the Constitution. As you mentioned earlier, vaccinations will be the only the only way to do it when they come online. They'll be probably required. The, the country is under pretty much house arrest. Can you just, you know, give the a shorthand version, though I know it will be difficult, of why that is the absolutely wrong approach from an infectious disease point of view, because you do have that background in biology.
0: Yeah. So, so just to reiterate, John, I think what we're saying is, from let's go back to the core science. Why is the approach that's being taken place? Why is the approach being pushed by the WHO, the CDC, which is to put everyone under house arrest? why is that wrong is that right john that's really the foundation for your question yeah
1: why i mean i know it why is it wrong even from a medical point of view I yeah mean, i think we, we can explore the political reasons behind it that are no one will talk about or at least not in the mainstream media but why from a medical point of
0: view yeah so let's talk about from a medical point of view okay so i'm going to go over a bunch of reasons let's start with the supposition here that the framework here is we support public health right john the goal right. is the media soundbite is we care about public health the cdc cares about public health by the way the cdc is a private institution people should know that okay um, who we care about public health um, but the 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 rubric of this is we care about public health we don't want to hurt you we want to save lives right so sure. let's talk about that what is in so let's just step back what's the number one reason from a biological physiological from a research standpoint that people live long and have healthy lives? Do You know what it is, John? The number one reason out of all the research that's been done on longevity.
1: Genetics? Nope. No. Well, what is the number
0: one reason that why people live long have healthy lives? Because that's what we're talking about. Public health. The number one reason is social connections. Mm-hmm. Right. Fellowship with other human beings. So they they find people who smoke all day, right? Or drink all day, eat horribly, are overweight, but they live long, ninety, a hundred years. I'm not saying everyone should go do that, but but the but it's fascinating. The number one reason is social connections, friendships, love, you know, neighborliness, because people feel connected. Their cortisol. I mean, there's many many reasons, but the work of Stephen Cole, which was just published about about I think uh, seven eight years ago in the in the uh, proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences actually shows in the 1988 landmark study they showed the enormous value of social connections what happens to people get socially isolated the 1988 study showed that people have, have social isolation the detrimental effects of that are worse than obesity worse than worse than smoking and worse than high blood pressure And the biological work at the molecular systems level has shown when you're socially isolated, your body will actually upregulate inflammatory proteins. Remember, inflammation is not good. It hurts the immune system. And you lower antiviral compounds. This is your own body's pharmaceutical being attacked in both ways. So let's talk, so that's number one. So first, you're socially isolating people. I could argue from a pure biological standpoint, this is the worst thing that you could do to the broad population. And there's so much data already happening right now. A very good friend of mine, a wife, amazing health. She has a huge, so very extroverted. Um, uh, 40 years ago, she was you know, uh, uh, was on depression medications. A week ago, John, I get an email from him. She goes, Shiva, it's really difficult. My wife has relapsed into massive depression. Not like this in 40 years. Why? Because she had a, you know, her bridge group, she used to uh, go out to the, why? That is damaging, John. So number one, the social isolation of quarantining people, that's actually hurting people, physiologically hurting people. And God knows how much uh, biological damage that's already caused to people, number one. Number two, let's talk about the fact that we have a spectrum of people who are actually people who are virus, forget the coronavirus, I don't even wanna get into this branding, COVID-19, all this nonsense, okay? The reality is viruses come and go. We have 380 trillion viruses in our body. We're all walking germ factories. Who actually dies of viruses? Who actually gets hurt when flu season comes, who? It's the immunocompromised, which is a small subset of the population. But in the United States, that subset is growing because of the dirty air, dirty water, dirty food, people consuming large volumes of sugar, which suppress your immune system. Again, we can get into the biology. From a biological standpoint, John, immune compromised people, elderly people, people with pre-existing conditions, those people are the ones, whether it's this virus or another virus, is going to damage and attack and kill. I hope that's clear. So that's a second biological foundation everyone needs to understand. So if you go to that second biological foundation, who is actually being affected by this virus? Well it's that group of people. Okay, it's that group of people. Well in my letter to the president I said what we should really be doing is taking that group of people, let's support them with immune supportive things. that no work, 80,000 papers written on high dose vitamin, C, vitamin D for those people, high dose vitamin A in short periods. And those people are critically ill, which is not you or I, knock on wood. Those people are critically ill. Before you go throw them on a ventilator and blow up their lungs, which is what they're doing, please, for God's sakes, give them IV vitamin C. Give them IV vitamin C for God's sake. Why? Because high dosage, therapeutic dosage of vitamin C immunomodulate the cytokine storm. They lower inflammation. They eat up antioxidants and they are antiviral. But not one, so that's a, another small subset of people. The remaining set of us who are healthy, take some vitamin D, take some vitamin A, take, support yourself with some vitamin C, get back to work. Get back to work. Now, because okay.
1: In the long term, we, we we can't even predict the invisible deaths that will ensue if this goes on too long from that kind of depression and despair that comes when you lose your life savings, you lose exactly. your business.
0: Right. And in yeah. fact, in fact, you know, I was on a show and I said, look, there's been around 60,000 deaths in the Americas, right? From H1N1. Did we shut down all the Americas, right? We didn't do that. And they said, whoa, the number he's saying is not true. It's only 12,000. Well, the reality is these idiots don't read Lancet. When the Lancet analysis was done, it actually said that the predictions were way too low. That when you include the respiratory illness and cardiovascular illness, it was around 60,000. That's how many people died of H1N1 in the Americas, including the United States. So what we're seeing also is cooking of the books, massive cooking of the books. Now, apparently, the flu season deaths are going down and the COVID increasing. And what we do know is anyone who comes in, the hospital administrators are incentivized to map people into COVID-19 and buy, put them on ventilators. This is a business model. They make money. And we know that the poor doctors who thought they were on top of the food chain in the hospitals are recognizing that the hospital administrators run them. That's the truth. And they are on the same level as nurses and other frontline front medical officers. This is a good thing that doctors wake up, that they are no better. They are basically tools in a big medical establishment, but fundamentally if you go to the biology, number one, social isolation destroys the immune system. Number two, it's the immunocompromised who are hurting it's their uh, their immune system and if I can just talk to that John, to everyone listening, again what you need to understand that here's the real science not the fake science of Big Pharma Fauci. The real science is that your immune system has multiple subsystems, the innate system, which is consists of all the parts of your body where your body first interacts with the virus, your eyes, your nose, your mucous membranes, you, you have your interferon system, you have your gut microbiome, you have the, you have the adaptive immune system and the neural system, and just For those of you listening, everyone says, Shiva, you don't talk about your credentials. I have four degrees from MIT, my PhD is in biological engineering, I'm considered one of the world's leading guys on the immune system and precision and personalized medicine. This is why the National Science Foundation in November didn't invite Bill Gates, they didn't invite Fauci, they invited me to give the distinguished lecture on the modern science of the immune system. I was invited. I didn't see Hillary Clinton there. I didn't see Mark Zuckerberg there. I didn't see Tedros there. I didn't see the Chinese Communist Party president there. It was me. Dr. Shiva Ayyadurai, MIT PhD, was the one who gave the distinguished lecture on the modern science of the immune system at the National Science Foundation in November. So, anyone wants to question my credentials, you should go question the credentials of MDs who get maybe about 12 hours of learning the immune system, if any. M- MDs M- do not know jack about the immune system. What they do know is how to, if this, then this, and by the way, I don't blame them, they're basically unfortunate victims of a big pharma educational model. But if you study the immune system, what you realize, it's the pathogen, the viruses, and the, all these, that we're, we're being hit by them every day. You have proper food and nutrition, your body knows how to handle it, you get a little sniffle, you get a little itch, whatever, right? You handle right.
1: it. Because who hasn't? felt like you were coming down with something, but you you know, you modulate what you do, maybe you sleep more, you get some more rest, you, you get some you, more fluids, and it kinda of goes away after a day. Right. So you uh, learn Or conversely, yeah. you don't do that, you go out drinking or doing whatever and boom, you come down with it.
0: Right. And so the history of Fauci and the history of medicine has always been to find a microbe. This has been a very interesting history, um, John. If you look at it, I mean, it's a longer discussion, but the history has always been to blame. Like, you know, the prosecutor always wants to find a criminal. Mm -hmm. In this case, the district attorney here, which is Fauci, wants to find a microbe, a virus. (laughs) I'm being serious. This has been their model. That's correct. The model is, and this has been the long history since the germ theory. I'm not saying viruses don't damage you, can damage you, but the reality is it is not the virus that causes the damage. It is your your compromised immune system. So what happens when your immune system gets compromised? How can it get compromised? Well, if you eat a lot of sugar, high sugar diet, by the way, the FDA will not allow anything to be called a jam or a jelly unless it has 40% sugar. Okay? It can't be, by law, okay? So they want you to eat sugar. You eat a lot of sugar. It destroys your, well, first of all, it creates candida, fungus which destroys your gliotoxins, which takes out two of your six cylinders, or at least multiple cylinders of your body, the macrophages and the T cells. So now your body doesn't have, you know, you basically tie two arms behind, uh, uh, two, two, both your arms behind you, you've handcuffed yourself, and all you have is maybe one foot. And that is your cytokine response. And that starts kicking vic- vigorously, right, to protect itself. And in that vigorous kicking, it not only attacks the virus glycoproteins but it all you also attack your own tissues so it is the overreactive immune system that kills you that hurts you it's not the virus so this fact is a biological fact so instead of addressing that john we've shut down the whole freaking economy It's and, total BS. If you BS. Think of one
1: person, I don't. I'm not even thinking of Fauci. If there's one person on the planet who's most responsible for this kind of response in policy, it would be Tedros. And if you look at his background, I don't know
0: if you. Yeah, have, it's. it's he's, but, he was a member of the. Yep. Go ahead. I'm
1: sorry. Yeah, this 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 man was a. You know, number five in the most repressive Marxist dictatorship in Ethiopia who as health minister used a cholera outbreak as a weapon against the minority that he saw as the opposition to his political party as health minister he did not declare that outbreak as cholera and such and as such aid was denied to that group and millions of people died and that's, this is the guy who is, is running the World Health Organization.
0: Look, the agenda here is very simple. You create fake science. Climate change, infectious disease. And with fake science, you manipulate... By the way, the world has become very close. I'm, I'm talking about not only small, but small in terms of the global elites. A few set of people control this. So you create fake science. You have these institutions called MIT and Harvard. By the way, Jeffrey Epstein, I keep saying, was there funding them. This is no no accident. And after he was convicted, MIT and Harvard still took money from them. Mm -hmm. So you have a, a global elite of people who now have orchestrated people who they support in the scientific establishments who actually create fake science, they manufacture science. You know noam chomsky wrote a book called manufacturing consent we're talking about manufacturing science so they manufacture science and then the fake news media manufactures a consent to that fake science so that's what we have we have manufactured science which 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 is manufactured so you manufacture climate change co2 is a pollutant you manufacture that the immune system is so weak that viruses come come eat it and that's what fauci did he's the one who took the front seat for showing that HIV is a causality of AIDS. Total BS. And then with that, they created the AIDS industry. They created, you know, the politically correct industry if you attack that. Mm-hmm. So that's what Fauci's response for. This is his second rodeo. So, what we fundamentally have is we have fake science being created to emboldened by fake news, fake innovation, fake history. And then you destroy real science when you start talking about the immune system can be protected with vitamins, not vaccines. With nutrition, not vaccines, and vitamins not ventilators. So you have very stupid people in the media who who were probably the kids that sat in the back of the class smoking weed all day. I'm sorry, okay?
1: <laughs> I, I, you know, while I was, was same, busting my same butt thing that doing I observe though, however are yeah. when I look at friends, family, and neighbors who have uh, bought this so so, you know, in their bones almost that now there's almost a civil war going on between people who live across the street or who live live on the other side of town or or within families of one believes one thing one believes another and there it it just kind of reminds me of people who may have lived on the other side of the Mason Dixon line where all of a sudden now they're enemies. Uh, and and it, it is a very sad thing to, to experience well, because I do experience it with my own friends and family.
0: I see. Um, John, one of the interesting things is that um, th- there is a division, and it's a, I think it's a necessary division. The division that's emerging is a division between human beings, whether we're going to be humans or automatons. Sure. That is what the real division here is. Are we going to be humans? Or machines. And I've thought about it a lot You know, I'm finishing up a book called The Climate of Science and I talk about it. Are we gonna head, and, and by the way, in the first 20 years of a century is when the directionality, and this uh, famous anthropologists have done this research, is decided whether we head into the edge uh, to the Golden Age or to the Dark Ages. And we're right at that point. We're right at the center of it. Are we gonna go to the Golden Age where human beings, where we decentralize, where we smash up Centralization, or are we going to go to the centralization of everything, which is what the Chinese Communist Party is all about? Centralization of everything, and and made in China is coming to you know coming to America, which means outsourcing. <coughs> They've manufactured the centralization of everything, centralization of propaganda, centralization of science, centralization of innovation, and we are now bringing that to the United States, and it's accelerating. So to everyone listening. What I can tell you is that we're at a very, very important inflection point in the entire history of the world. And it is going to, it is a war. It, is, it We should embrace it. It's a war. And it's going to be a war against humans versus machines. And when I mean machines, I'm not, you don't need silicon people, it's silicon beings. It's about people who are on automatic auto drive. Who think that CO2 is a pollutant and they've been convinced on it, who believe, that the immune system is so weak, and you can go down the list who believe that guns cause violence when the research actually shows that it's not the guns, there are four other methods. I mean, I've done videos on it. People go to truthfreedomhelp.com. I've done it, you know, with beautiful little diagrams, simple diagrams. I expose this. But that is where we're at, John. It is truly the producers versus the parasites. And what's the hope in this, John? The amazing hope, and Lindzen talks about this, and I've talked about this, is that working people, John, Mm -hmm. People like, which is still the the majority of people in the world, working people who use their hands, nurses and, uh, you know, a surgeon. By the way, surgeons are a little bit different than doctors. They have to solve a problem, okay? Um, Or plumbers or electricians or engineers. We actually get this. Everyone looks at the climate change stuff and most of those people say this is nonsense. Most people look at this and they say this is nonsense. The people who don't get this are the idiots who write for the New York Times. Are the idiots who write for all of these Vanity Fair and Vogue who deny you know, uh, the people who sit in their little rooms and want to deny truth. Those are the people who don't get it. Those are the people who don't know how to fix anything. They can't build anything. They're not builders like Trump was or they're not engineers like myself. They are people who have zero skills. Nothing. They create, like lawyers, something in the abstract ether. That's what they do. So I believe we may need to have a, a good revolutionary war. And it may be necessary because what are we going to have at the end of this long life but no freedom? What kind of life is that John?
1: Well it, it's it's the life I observed when at age 24 I lived in the Soviet Union and I watched the kind of depression of, of so many people as they walked around. It's an interesting anecdote I should tell you, it'll only take a second. Genetically you know I was Exactly the same as all the people there. I, I had the same clothes. I looked exactly the same And but my friends there said when you walk down the street People can pick you up in a second that you're an American. And yeah, I thought well, how and they said well, you walk like an American? you believe you walk like you believe that you can do anything and They didn't that was driven beaten out of them. Yeah, by, by five decades of statism of Soviet oppression. And so maybe it does boil down to this, Shiva, that, that there's two kinds of people, people who believe, believe in the individual or people who believe we are just poker chips, we are farm animals for the state, and yeah. I believe in the individual.
0: Well, maybe Darwinian evolution is taking place, John, on some interesting aspect, right? The issue is going to be who is going to survive? Because I'll tell you this, When you walk around and you see people with masks and not masks, it literally looks like the dissenters and the non-dissenters. That's what it's starting to look like. It's it's looking like we're starting to mark... the And and we have to understand what was going on six months before all this, John. Let's just look at historically. What was going on six months before this fear-mongering scam? What was going on was there was dissension globally. Millions of people in Hong Kong. Tens of thousands of people, I've mentioned this over and over again, were protesting in Wuhan. Anti-pollution protests. And they were being beaten the hell out of, and they actually won, and then the Chinese government took a step back. Millions, you know, I don't know how many millions in in, in France, remember that? Protesting. Mm-hmm. in Venezuela. And look, at,
1: and look at every Trump rally, there were 10 or Trump 15, rally exactly inside and another 15 thousand outside and they were camping out like it was uh, a Beatles concert. I mean, it was, exactly. it was an amazing thing to watch.
0: So um, John, if I can just share with people, you know, as, as we talk about this, it's, it's important for, um, is that, you know, I'm running for Senate, the campaign is really around truth, freedom and health, and we talk about freedom in this context because We've seen the rising of the people over the last six months globally. You had two leaders who were populist leaders get elected, and including Boris Johnson. Sorry, three, right? Boris Johnson, Brexit was taking place, Modi got elected, re-elected in India, Trump here. These were anti-establishment forces taking place. And that's why, you know, if people want to look at what's going on here. I believe our campaign for Shiva for Senate in, in many ways John with all humility is becoming the tip of the spear of that right now and that's why I think my followers and and the the videos are exploding all over the world right now because it has been very rare that a scientist an inventor a guy who came from nothing like myself who represents a working class be it in New Jersey or be it in India or everywhere has ever been able to get his message and had a megaphone like this on this issue so if everyone understands what I'm talking about. One of the things I've done, John, is my view is to educate people on how systems work. And my entire education was on system science. So when I came back from India, on my Fulbright, I actually built a whole methodology. So when people go to our campaign and they they go to the website, Shiva for Senate, and they click on donate, it's not about just taking people's money. This is a real movement for truth, freedom, and health. And one of the things I've done is people go to Shiva for Senate and they click on that donate link And this is not a PBS commercial here. One of the things we've done there is that I offer people a really cool book that took me probably 20, 30 years to write. It's called System and Revolution. I teach people how control systems work and the principles of all systems of the universe, every system. And anyone can learn this. You don't need an MIT education. I took away all the nonsense that they make it difficult. And then I created a software tool, John, with my own. I wrote the tool which educates people how their body is a system and you can understand these forces of transport, conversion, and storage. And then on top of it, John, we used to like, give it away for 25 bucks, and given the economic distress, I've told people, pay whatever you can. And if you can't afford it, just send me an email and I'll give you a full scholarship. Okay? Um, what I'm saying is, the revolutionary, the revolutionary education that people need to learn, is systems thinking, John. That's the way out of this. Because if people can learn that there is a science, there is a fundamental science, of systems. And when you understand that science, those same scientific principles go through your body, through your computer, through your microphone, through your thermostat, through an autopilot, anything in the universe. And I can teach that to people. So I believe that's separate from the invention of email, separate from this technology I created Cytosolve, which can model molecular pathways, which came out of my PhD work. But systems health and systems thinking is one of the ways for people to liberate themselves. So everyone should go up to that site and participate in this education. In addition, you talk about the coronavirus, John, as you know, we had amazing volunteers on the ground collecting signatures for us. None of our other competitors did. People, particularly lots of women who are against, you know, want their children to be healthy came up. And and as we're collecting signatures, suddenly now we can't collect signatures because of the grocery stores. So we, if people go to Shiva for Senate and they scroll down, anyone listening should recognize that you can literally click on the button that says signature uh if you go to shiver for center scroll down and you can get me on the ballot by filling out a form we will mail you to your home the nomination papers you fill it out and you and we give you all the postage so we need everyone if you know people in massachusetts by the way it's for massachusetts residents if you know people in massachusetts in the boston area john you should tell all your friends right (laughs) they should go here fill it out and we will mail it to them. But by the way, we're not using some mailing company funded to you by Charlie Baker for his opponent, for my opponent. This is brought to us by our volunteers we are in there. We stuff the envelopes, we do it by hand and we're sending it out. So everyone should go to, you know, get the tools to help you understand systems, which is what our campaign is about. And also get us on the ballot. We must get on the ballot. And we get on the ballot, we're gonna win, John. And that's what the establishment doesn't want. The deep state truly, with all humility, considers probably me one of their most dangerous enemies, because I come from everyday people. I'm articulate. I'm reasonably good looking. I, I, uh, I'm, uh, you know, I, I know the science and I know how they operate.
1: And you have a great memory, so you, you can you can you have the data right in your noggin. You don't have yeah. to go to the computer to get it. Well,
0: I, everything I write, every tweet I do, it's my words. You know, all the Kennedys and all the Clintons and all the uh, Malarkeys and all these people—they need twenty speechwriters. They got watch them how they drive around. They drive in the back seat. I drive my own car. Okay, <laughs> they got five different handlers, and that's where people's donations go.
1: Yeah, do you find it somewhat uh, too coincidental that uh, event two hundred one took place last fall, where Bill Gates and Johns Hopkins had the simulation of a pandemic, and then Netflix came out with their series on yeah. the pandemic, and then boom, we have one. Doesn't that feel a little bit too coincidental?
0: Look, we have the ac- the academic and Hollywood whores. That's what they are, academia and Hollywood, and I think that's the right word to use. I don't think we're I don't think we should mince anymore. Because look, I was out in Hollywood, you know um, you know uh, and I saw that there were great actors, very, very few, but most of them were celebrities who wanted who made a hit and then frankly had no career, and they were always doing some non nonprofit this or that to redefine their careers. in academia or in, in science, we have the same thing. we have real scientists, and then we have academics. The academics and the celebrities are basically prostitutes. they prostitute to whoever will fund them. And that's what we have. So we have real scientists and really great craftsmen in the acting world, very few, because because they're not willing to sleep with Harvey Weinstein. Okay? They're not willing to kiss up to Fauci. They're not willing to buy the narratives. You know, I've called for his firing. We have I think we have close to 80,000 people, John, who've sat, if you if you go to our website, if you scroll down, we have a fire Fauci petition, and nearly now we have 3 to 5,000 doctors who've signed it. So we are literally creating a tip of a revolutionary movement, and the goal of that is to smash the powers of power, profit, and control. And we have a historic opportunity, I believe. A a time like this, I don't think, will come again. And I think they're gonna make sure it never comes again. And that is gonna be through mandated medicine, using the fear of crashing economies, and to total destruction of dissent. So anyway, John, I hope, I've shared with you my views on this. I know we've covered a bunch of topics, but I think the key thing is uh, the reason these people hate the invention of email, they hate to talk about where real science comes from because it exposes their fake science and their lies and it, get, it, it exposes the fact that we're at a point where you cannot trust academics. We're, we're at a point of the state of science and innovation in the world is at a very decrepit stage and we need to smash and I use that word smash, meaning we actually have to obliterate the existing systems of the scientific establishment. These people are not good people. Massive egos. They think they're better than you and I. And it's literally the producers of the world versus the parasites.
1: And that's their Period. end game. It's not to control the virus, it's, a, it's to control you.
0: And the interesting thing is, you know what they call the pot, co- what is it, the, the pot calls the kettle black? Is that what it is? Yeah, that's well, it. they're the virus. Yeah. They're the yeah. virus that needs to be eliminated, because they want to control us, suppress us, manipulate us, and make them, as the Chinese Communist Party does, part of a big factory. We are little automatons in their factory. Anyway, John, I hope okay. this was. It was great talking to you. I hope we, uh, you know, we haven't um, uh, had a chance to go over all of the stuff. But I think our perspectives from people who came bottoms up, that's what this is about also, bottoms up. It's not top down. Because Mm -hmm. top down leadership, you know, in the quote unquote anti-vaccine movement, and by the way, uh, you've had a guy like Bobby Kennedy, who's been trying to, you know, talks a good game, you know, I'm Bobby Kennedy, I'm against Big Pharma, but you know what? He talks against Gates, but he's in love with Hillary Clinton. He endorsed her three times. He can't trust a guy like that. So the establishment, everyone listening needs to understand that the, forget Democrats or Republicans in Massachusetts, there's only one party, but the establishment is very clever. They have their multi-racial liberal aristocracy. In the United States, they have the mystique of the Kennedys, who lead the not-so-obvious establishment, that only the Kennedys can fight for our rights. And you can see it in this anti-vaccine movement, right, or in the medical freedom movement. Bobby Kennedy talks a good game, and his entire game is always about him. I'm going to fight for you in the courts, Right, takes a lot of money in. And the end game is when I call the bottoms up movement at the bottom saying, look, forget, forget negotiating with legislators, which is what he wants. That's when we won in New Jersey. We won when it's bottoms up. So I think the key theme here, whether it's innovation, whether it's revolutionary change, whether it's health, it must come bottoms up. We're never going to get health. We're never going to get truth. We're never going to get freedom by the establishment of the existing elites, the Fauci's or the Gateses, or the not so obvious establishment of the Kennedys or the Clintons or people who claim they want to help us. These people are all part of one big incestuous clique. It's got to come from us, bottoms up, period. Science, that's when we're going to have amazing science, that's when we're going to have incredible health, that's when we're going to have true innovation because that's where it's always come from, the edges. It's not come from the center, it's come from the edges.
1: Well, that's true, whether from Galileo to Darwin uh, to Jonas Salk to, the, to Madame Curie, all from that place. Well, we've been talking for two hours here.
0: Oh my God! Okay, of, I hope we, we haven't bored too many people. But uh, anyway, this was great, John. Let's do it again. Okay. But, uh, we will. I really enjoy your insights, and uh, and as both of us as Bostonians, uh, I think we both agree that Massachusetts is the center of the deep state. It's not Washington, D.C. The center, the center, the epicenter of the global deep state, I would argue, is Massachusetts. And I can tell you the longitude and the latitude. It's a one mile radius between MIT and Harvard. That's where it is. Yep, you bet. And that's why I want to win this time. Last time running against Warren was fun. You know, it was exciting. I learned a lot, but I'm here to win. And everyone out there listening it's time that you had one of your own representing you. That's what we deserve. Not a lawyer, but one of your own. A guy with his bare hands who actually makes stuff, who created thousands of jobs in Massachusetts, who actually created email, who created echo mail, who created products that help people. And that's what everyone does. A plumber does that. We all serve people. The people who actually are the producers always have a customer at the end. The parasites don't have a customer. No. So. Anyway, okay, well, anyway let, John, let's this was great. let talk again. Okay.
1: okay bye-bye. Thank i get got another call coming in. Another thing to do. Okay. Be We're well. So, Take care. Okay.
0: Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So anyway, everyone, that was my friend John. I hope this was valuable for people to understand uh, at, a, at a fundamental level what's really going on. And, and uh, I enjoyed the conversation with John, but the key takeaway I want everyone to think about is this, that The invention of email took place under circumstances which were not part of the military industrial establishment. It took place in Newark, New Jersey by a 14-year-old me, by a kid who came from nothing. And that innovation took place in the triangle of not the military industrial academic complex. This is what bothers them. It took place in the loving environment of mentors uh, a loving family and, and a dedicated teacher. And By the way, that triangle is where TV was invented by Philo Farnsworth. And so when I come out there and I start exposing the establishment, if you notice, very, very horrible newspapers like the New York Times. When I said, let's go after Fauci, their one-liner was he didn't invent email. Historians agree. Well, these historians, we'll talk about them, are one of the most corrupt, wh- corrupt people on the planet they are paid to simply write a history which serves the interests of the establishment. In this case, serves the interests of big, big defense companies who wanted to change the narrative that a bearded looking guy who did not invent email did it to promote their multi-billion dollar industry and we'll talk about that and I've talked about it before but the invention of email must be defended of its origin. It's not only to give credit to me who did it but it's to give credit to you and every working person because the invention of email is ultimately about you and where does, where does innovation come from and what does it mean to be a human being? Anyway, I hope uh, this has helped people to understand this and I thank everyone. Everyone, by the way, go to, uh, go to, uh, please go to the Shiva for Senate website. Please make sure your friends are in Massachusetts are clicking on that thing called um, uh, um, uh, get Shiva on the ballot, click on it and submit submit their information so we can send them out nomination papers. Anyway, thank you everyone. Be the light, be well. Thanks.